6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 13 through chapter 14, verse 11. And by the way, the person, according to, I think it's the Talmud, or Josephus, I forget which, that presents the scroll to Cyrus is none other than Daniel. And uh, Cyrus is obviously impressed. I think we all would be, wouldn't you? Find a letter, 150 years old, calling you by name. And by the way, giving the highlights of your career and some other things. And so uh, Cyrus is impressed. It's a matter of history that he is, and he releases the Jews to go home. Now, what's interesting about this is it's the very day, 70 days, that the captivity started. That's a whole study, but when you go through all that arithmetic, you discover it's the exact day. Now, there's another detail of all of this that I think is worth your consideration. There's a passage in Ezekiel, chapter 4, and for time reasons we won't go into all the details now, but the gist of it is, is that God says through Ezekiel that there will be 430 years of judgment on Israel. Now, 70 of those 430 years we know about. That's the Babylonian captivity. If you take 70 from 430, that leaves you 360 years of judgment predicted upon Israel. And those 360 years don't fit any particular passage of history. It's, a, it's, a, it's an awkward interpretive problem. It has been suggested by several that in Leviticus chapter 26, there's four different places where God says, in effect, that if you don't obey me the first time, I'll multiply your punishments by seven. Oh, another piece of history you need to have to get background here. When Nebuchadnezzar does his first siege, and he makes them all vassals of Babylon and takes some of them slaves, the prophets, that is, I should say, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, preach to the people that Nebuchadnezzar is the instrument of God, that this is God's judgment off the nation. The false prophets surrounding the leadership say nonsense. We're God's chosen people, and God's going to deliver us. And that was a more popular message. Jeremiah says, no, God has told me to tell you that don't expect to be delivered. You're in for 70 years of captivity. And by the way, if you don't yield, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. Well, to make a long story short, Jehoiakim says nonsense. He rebels. Nebuchadnezzar lays a second siege on Babylon, succeeds, replaces Jehoiakim with Zedekiah, and goes back home. And again, Ezekiel from writing from Babylon and Jeremiah writing in, Ju in Jerusalem tell Zedekiah, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, he's the hand of God, in effect. They couldn't swallow that. They're Jewish, he's Gentile, God is going to deliver us, and so forth. No. So they rebel also. And by this time, Nebuchadnezzar has a belly full of the whole operation. He sends his troops and not only lays siege, he levels the place, destroys Jerusalem, takes them all slaves. That's the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. The reason I'm getting into these technicalities is, in the Old Testament, there are two phrases. One is the servitude of the nation is to be 70 years long, and it was to the very day. It starts from the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar. There's also a phrase, and Daniel uses it and elsewhere, of the desolations of Jerusalem, and they were predicted by Jeremiah to be 70 years long. And because they both smack of the captivity and they're both 70 years long, most scholars treat the servitude of the nation and the desolations of Jerusalem as if they were synonyms. Now, the reason I'm getting into this 
is this peculiar passage, some, I guess, 10, 15 years ago, this peculiar passage of Ezekiel bothered me. The 430 years, less 70, the 360 years. And, and uh, I ran into this idea that, gee, Leviticus says four times that if you don't obey me the first time, I'll multiply your punishment by seven. Well, if you multiply 360 by seven, you get 2,520 years. And several commentators have noted that that's about the, the duration of the diaspora. That is, from the Babylon captivity coming back, you know, by the time you go through Rome and the fall of Jerusalem in 780 and all that, the Jews get scattered throughout the world. That's been roughly a little over 2,000, called 2,500 years. Well, I'm always bothered by that. First of all, the whole length seemed a little contrived, but then also there's nothing approximate in God's plan. If we're understanding correct, it's precise to the very day. But what no one had bothered to do was to take the uh, 2,520 years and recognize that God deals in 360-day years for lots of reasons. Sir Robert Anderson discovered that and thus unraveled the Daniel 9, the 70-week prophecy of Daniel and all of that. But no one ever applied that here. So I thought, well, gee, what's 2,520 uh, years if you take 360-day years, the solar year? And that's 907,200 days. And you say, Chuck, that's wonderful. What do I do with that? Well, what you need to do is say, okay, what's that in our calendar? Well, that means you've got a, the Julian year is about 11 minutes and 10.46 seconds longer than the mean solar year. And what that all means is you end up having three leap years too many every four centuries. So, and they recognized this in 1752 AD. They realized they had an 11 day error in our Julian calendar. There was 11 days too many, so they made the 3rd of September of 1752, the 14th of September. In other words, got rid of 11 days, so to speak. They also decided that 1700, 1800, 1900 will be common years, not leap years. The year 2000 will be a leap year. The point is they, they corrected this minor anomaly in our leap year calculations to get the mean solar year in step with this idea of the year and all of that. Well, you say, gee, what do you do with the 2520 years? I mean, that's 907,200 days. How many years and days is that in our calendar? Well, it turns out that's um, 2483 years. And uh, you have to go through some corrections for the leap years. And without taking you through all of that, it turns out that the 2,520 year, years, by multiplying it out, becomes on our calendar 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days. And you say, gee, Chuck, that's really exciting. What do I do with that? Well, your next problem is, okay, when do you start counting? Well, it's interesting because the servitude of the nation started with the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and it lasted 70 years. But remember, those are 360-day years, so that's six, actually 69 years and two days. That means that that ended on July 23rd of 537 B.C. And if you count 2,483 years, nine months and 21 days, from the servitude of the nation, Israel, you come to May 14th of 1948, the very day that David Ben-Gurion announced to the world that the new Jewish homeland was going to be called Israel, May 14th of 1948. All the arguments that were still going through, I, I appear on KKLA and get into a talk show, and the amillennials crawl out of the woodwork. You take the Bible literally. I says, I take the Bible seriously. And they didn't know how to deal with that one. But, <laughs> but the, all those arguments should have ended on May 14th of 1948, because up till then you could argue this, that, and the other thing. But hey, Israel is. It's there. Go visit it. See it. Feel it. And they're going to start building the temple. Come on, get serious, gang. But that's interesting. I don't want to oversell this. The point is, that's an interesting situation. There are lots of controversies about the details I'm going through. I'm not boring you with all that stuff right now. But it's interesting, if you count this period of time that Ezekiel predicts from the servitude of the nation's completion, you come to May 14th of 1948. Okay. And I say, what a coincidence. And the rabbis say, coincidence is not a kosher word. Now, all this hangs around Babylon. Babylonian captivity. 
The Babylon captivity ended by Babylon being conquered by the Medes and the Persians, but the fact I'd like you just to trust me is important, is that the Persians did not do it with a, they didn't, they did not destroy the city, they conquered it. It became their capital. A couple of hundred years later, in Greece rises another young, promising, fantastic leader by the name of Alexander, who conquers the known world, all the way to India. I think, what was it, at the age of 29, he fell on his bed and wept because there were no more worlds he knew to conquer. Alexander the Great. What was his capital? Babylon. He conquered, you know, he conquered the Persians. Babylon was still a city. He was going to make it his primary capital. He had plans to make it a harbor with a thousand ships. That's all the way up the Euphrates. That's a big deal. He passed away in Babylon. So it never got fulfilled. His four generals said on his deathbed, who, who do you give the empire to? He says, give it to the strong. Boy, what a dumb thing to do. So they spent next century fighting over it, the four guys. The point is Babylon was inhabited for several centuries, after the Persians, after the Greece. In fact, even in 100 AD, there are still merchants there and there's a priestly school. Babylon atrophies. It disappears from prominence on the world scene because one of the four generals created a, a city called Seleucia, which was more closer to some trade routes, and because of its dominance, Babylon starts to decline you know, in a merchant sense, and it erodes away from history. Well, I'll come to some of that. Let's get back to Isaiah and see how this all, why this is all so important to you and I. But the first thing we notice, that the burden of Babylon, Babylon's going to be destroyed here, but we notice, first of all, it says the tumultuous, in verse 4, the tumultuous noise of kingdoms of nations gathered together, plural, lots of them. Some of the commentators as well, they were conquered by the Medes and the Persians, a coalition between the Medes and the Persians. And by the way, the Medes were uh, uh, allies of Babylon when they, when they were against Assyria for a while, but the Medes and the Persians were against Babylon, conquered Babylon. And we're going to discover the Medes are going to surface in verse 17. I'll leave those remarks till I get there. Let's move on. Uh, my suggestion is these are kingdoms of nations. It's plural. I think it's more than just the Medes and the Persians personally, but we'll go on. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. So this is God's hand in here. Verse 5, they come from a far country, from the end of heaven. Hey, come on, guys. Persia's next door. What do you mean the end of heaven? Something else is going on. Even the Lord and his weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Now, up till now, it's just been suggestive. But the next few verses are going to remove all doubt as to this having happened historically. Verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Wait a minute now. The day of the Lord, that's a familiar phrase to us students of the Old Testament. That's the day when God pours out his wrath upon the earth. That's the wrap-up. That's Armageddon. That's the close of the 70th week of Daniel. There's all, that's clearly yet future, as you'll see in a minute. So what, he, what Isaiah is talking about is never been fulfilled. This is not the fall of Babylon to the Persians. This is something else yet sure. Why am I making such a thing of this? Because the Bible requires the city of Babylon to be a major world power at the time of the end. Why is that meaningful to you and I? Because for 19 years, Saddam Hussein has been rebuilding the city of Babylon. The U.S. press does not have the biblical perception to understand its relevance. They think that just some ceremonial buildings, and they're right, by the way. If you visited there, you'd probably be quite disappointed. There's some temples and some buildings, but it's not a big deal yet, but it is being rebuilt. The Palace of Nebuchadnezzar has been rebuilt. Most of the major key temples have been rebuilt. The, procession, the famous processional way has been rebuilt. And, you know, it's, it's a, the point is it started. 
And the Bible, when you recognize that, you realize that these passages are not, not allegorical or symbolic. They're literal. Let's move on. See what else it says. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be like in, be in pain like a woman that travaileth. There's that expression. Those of you that are students of prophecy recognize that expression. That these judgments, these pains come like labor pains. That sounds familiar to you from Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and elsewhere. A very common expression in prophecy dealing with the, final, with the end time. They shall be amazed, one another, the faces shall be as flames. Behold, there it is again. The day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners out of it. Oh, really? Destroy the sinners out of it? That's interesting. You think that's interesting? Look at verse 10. For the stars of heaven and the constellation their constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened, it is going forth. The moon shall not cause its light to shine. And we'll find out in verse 13 that the, it's going to, the earth is going to be removed out of its orbit. Has that happened so far? Not so you'd notice. Verse 11, and I will punish the world for its evil. Wait a minute, I thought this was judgment on Babylon. The pride of the Chaldeans, this, this place on the, on the plain of Shinar, 62 miles south of Baghdad. No, no, I will punish the world. God can't punish the world until he's ready to punish all of it. That's why Jesus Christ, when he opened his ministry, quoting Isaiah chapter 61, first two verses, stopped at a comma. I'll publish tidings and heal the sick and so forth. But he, stopped. he didn't go beyond the comma which said, and the day of vengeance of our God. God wasn't ready yet. Praise God. If he was, you and I wouldn't be saved. I punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Has that happened yet? Because I know a few he's missed. <laughs> Verse 12, And I will make a man more rare than fine gold than a man than the golden wedge of Ephraim. It says here that the very existence of man will be threatened. Nowhere in history has the entire existence of the human race on the earth been threatened like it is today. Like it is today. Soviet Union submarines hold them hostage, 12,000 cities. We don't know where they are. They've got uh, 64 Typhoon-class submarines, each one with 20 tubes, each tube with each missile with uh, 10 independently targeted warheads, and uh, no way to stop it. And that's just their side. Now, you put our side on that, we have about half as much, but enough. we only have 6,000 cities. Get serious, gang. Right now, today, as we talk, the world is in jeopardy. We tend to dismiss that with all the other euphoria because of the 100-hour war, wonderful, and there's all this peace and safety being talked about. First Thessalonians tells us about that. When they say peace and safety, then cometh sudden destruction. Move on, verse 13. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the earth shall remove out of its place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And it shall be like the chaste roe and like a sheep that no man taketh up. They shall every man turn to his own people and flee every one into his own land. By the way, that verse 14 is kind of a strange verse. It implies that some of the sheep have been taken up, some are left. So you can chew on that one. If you're pre-trib, you can jump on that one and say, Ooh, great. 
but it's not conclusive. I just throw it as a side. But verse 15, everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. The children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. The house shall be spoiled, and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who shall not regard silver as for gold they shall not delight in. In other words, the Medes are involved, but not for, not, not for money, not for spoil. Now, because the Medes are mentioned in 17, many commentators assume that this refers to the Medes and Persians conquering Babylon in 539 B.C. Nonsense. No way has this happened in the past. You read the past, there's no way you can contrive the, this passage to have been fulfilled historically. It hasn't happened yet. What are the Medes doing here? Well, let's talk about the Medes a minute. Who are the Medes? The Medes were a nation in the western corner of Elam, Iran, Persia, and north, and also on the eastern edge of Iraq. You and I know the Medes as the Kurds. How do the Kurds feel about the Babylonians? Saddam Hussein used their chemical we his chemical weapons on their women and children to make a point. His guest, their, their, their women and children, his point. But um, how do the Medes feel about Iraq? Doesn't take any insight to visualize. Yes, indeed, they'll be stirred up against them, and they, not for silver or gold. Their bow shall dash the young men to pieces. There's that word again, bows. Bows and arrows are King James English. The Hebrew word are launchers and missiles. Their bow shall dash the young men to pieces. They shall have no pity in the fruit of the womb, and their eyes shall not spare the children. Now, verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' excellency. Is this mystical Babylon? Is this symbolic? Is this allegorical? No. It's the pride of the Chaldeans' excellency. Who was the Chaldeans? The people that dwelt in Shinar, the plain of Shinar. This is talking literal, traditional Babylon. How can it be? It's talking yet future. Babylon has to be rebuilt, and it is as we speak. And it shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. How did God overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis 18 and 19. Fire from heaven. Now, gee, is that missiles and nuclear? Could be. I'm not going to push that point. The main point is it hasn't happened in history. Verse 20. After this happens, that Isaiah is talking about it, shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelled in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. That's kind of interesting. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Babylon's got nothing to do with Arabia. Arabia's a long way to the south. How did Isaiah know that the Arabians would be a dominant factor in our day? That's kind of interesting in itself, isn't it? In any case, though, it'll never, Babylon will never be inhabited. Has it been inhabited? Yes. When Kolduy, the famous German excavator in the turn of the century, uh, excavated Babylon, he was able to hire Arabs from the four villages that sit there on Babylon. The village of Hilla had 10,000 occupants as late as the late 1800s. It was a, So this says it will never be inhabited. That means the destruction is talked about is yet future. But while beasts of the desert shall lie there, their houses shall be do, full of doleful creatures. Ostriches shall dwell there, and there's some doubt about the translation. And the he-goats shall dance there. Now the he-goats is a strange phrase because it also may mean demons. It's a, that's a whole side study. And the wild beasts of the coastland shall cry in their desolate houses and the jackals in their pleasant palaces and her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. And let's continue at verse 14 down to verse 11. We'll leave uh, verse 12 on for a special study next time. We've got enough spooky stuff for one night. Chapter 14 verse 1, the Lord shall have mercy on Jacob and yet choose Israel. Notice Jacob and Israel, it's the nation, and set them in their own land. 
See, that's happened. And the sojourners shall be joined with them, and they shall cling to the house of Jacob, and the people shall take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and handmaids. Really? And they shall take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from hard bondage in which thou wast made to serve. That thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. Who, he who smote the people in wrath in a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet, and they break forth into singing. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid down, no hewers come up against us. So very poetic way of Isaiah giving comfort, if you will, to Israel. Bear in mind he's writing before they're going to be slaves and be oppressed so they can cling to these words knowing the day will come when the, the tables will be turned, if you will. Verse 9, Sheol from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Oh, what does that say? Is that poetic language, or is there something really spooky going on here? Those of you that want to chase this trail down to its conclusion, I commend to you a study of Daniel chapter 10. We'll talk about that next time for some other reasons. Verse 10, All they, uh, all they uh, shall speak and say to thee, Art thou become as weak as we? These are down in Sheol. That means the shades that are down there greeting their visitors can express themselves. Apparently some of the things that makes uh, Sheol or Hades or whatever you want to call it um, disturbing to the, um, the unblessed is that they can understand what they're missing and they can communicate their lack of hope to one another. Art thou become as weak as we are? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to Sheol, the noise of thy lutes, and the worm is spread over thee, and the worms cover thee. Now there's their maggot ridden and on and go. You think that's grim. Wait till next time. It's going to get worse. Um, we will talk about the origin, career, and destiny of one of the angels. The only angel to my knowledge that allowed himself to be worshipped, other than Jesus Christ, of course. The angel, in the sense that the angel of the Lord often refers to him. We know only of three angels that have names. Michael, Gabriel, and this one that Isaiah is going to give us some glimpses into. Gabriel is always messianic. We know his job description by searching the Bible and seeing every place he's mentioned. It's always on a messianic mission. And Daniel is giving the exact day that Jesus Christ is going to present himself as king, and he does to the very day. And it's Gabriel that tells Mary about the forthcoming child and so on. The other one has a name as Michael, always a warrior, and always, always fighting militarily on behalf of Israel. And there's a third one by the name of Lucifer. We'll talk about him next time. We won't take our time tonight on that subject, but that's why we'll cut it off uh, tonight at, at verse 11. The other passages that are um, worth summarizing, in the interest of time, we won't go into it in uh, too much detail, but it might be good just to hit the highlights. See, let's turn to Jeremiah 50. And just, they're longer chapters, so we don't have time to really do it in depth, but we can zip through to give you some of the flavor of it. And I'll give you some insights and also let you chew on some questions. Jeremiah 50 and 51. Again, 50 opens up. The word of the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and so on. And it mentions her idols and so forth. For out of the north there cometh up a nation against her. Oh, that's interesting. From the north. Who's north of Babylon? 
When we get home, look at a globe. Soviet Union. And, and so forth. And um, they're going to, Israel will be not only regathered, but in belief because the covenant is good. And that's a whole other insight. But get to verse 8. Flee out of the midst of Babylon, go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as he goats before the flocks, and so forth. For lo, I raise up and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall set themselves in array against her. And on it goes. Get down to verse 13. Because of the wrath of the Lord, shall not, it shall not be inhabited. There is that theme again. And the walls are thrown down, verse 15. That has not happened. Yes, they eroded historically, but this, this kind of destruction has never occurred. And on it goes. And we get to 19. We talk about the Golan Heights. I won't get to that right here. Verse 25, against the land of the Chaldeans. It's not allegorical. It's literal. Verse 34 is kind of fun. Speaking of Israel, it says, the Redeemer is strong. We happen to know his name. Israel doesn't yet, but they'll learn. Get down to chapter, verse 39, the wild beasts of the desert and so forth. And it shall no more be inhabited forever, neither shall it be dwelled in from generation to generation. That has never happened. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, there's that phrase again in Jeremiah, and their neighboring cities, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell in her. And behold, a people shall come from the north. Notice verse 41. Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the borders of the earth. Now, many people got overly excited about these passages during the 100-hour war in the recent Persian Gulf crisis. And on the one hand, the good news is they began to recognize that literal Babylon was happening, so that was good. And yet, and certainly there were many kings and people came from the borders of the earth. We were there, etc. But did this happen as described here? No, it didn't. Don't try to twist it that it did. No, the destruction it's talking about here is not the destruction that happened. To, and by the way, don't confuse Iraq with Babylon. Don't confuse Iraq with Assyria. You say, well, gee, that's the same geography. No, it isn't. You take the Babylonian, you take the Babylonian Empire... Take the Assyrian Empire, take the Babylonian Empire, take the Persian Empire, and lay out the empires, and the borders are not that different. So you're talking empires, not just the city, if you follow me. So don't be confused by that. Just watch the paper, and it'll all unfold. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.